Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this virtual tumor board episode, we will discuss the management of metastatic PDL1 negative non-small cell lung cancer. To help navigate this space, I am fortunate enough to be joined by two very thoughtful medical oncologists with extensive expertise in lung cancer management, Dr. Haas Borgai and Dr. Reyes Burnaby Caro. Dr. Borgai is a professor and chief of thoracic oncology at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. He has played a major role in the development of lung cancer immunotherapy in every line. He was the lead author for Checkmate 057. He's involved in many of the landmark immunotherapy trials that have established our standard of care and is the national PI for the ongoing Insigna trial. Haas, thank you for joining today. Thank you, Stephen. Glad to be here. I'm also joined by Dr. Reyes Bernabe Caro. She is the section chief of medical oncology and head of the thoracic tumor unit at the Hospital Universitario Virgen Rotillo in Sevilla, Spain. She also has extensive experience in immunotherapy combinations. She is an author of the Nadim trial and the Checkmate 227 study. Reyes, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure for me to participate in this virtual tumor board with both of you. Wonderful. So let me present our case. This is a patient that I had seen, a 59-year-old male with a heavy smoking history who noted a progressive cough and dyspnea. He was concerned about COVID, actually, but repeatedly tested negative, finally had a chest X-ray that showed a large left pleural effusion. He had a CT scan and a PET that showed a two-centimeter left upper lobe lung mass, enlarged mediastinal adenopathy, pleural nodules, and that left pleural effusion. A thoracentesis revealed squamous cell carcinoma and PDL1 immunohistochemistry using the 22C3 antibody was negative at 0%. This patient had an excellent performance status, was working full-time as an accountant. He has a good support network. And apart from well-controlled hypertension, no other comorbidities. So let me pause there. Haas, do you need any other information? Maybe specifically, do you routinely perform next-gen sequencing or any other biomarker testing for squamous non-small cell lung cancer? That's a great question, I think, uh, for this particular histology. The answer is that I am doing this uh, more and more frequently for all of my patients with uh, a diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer, regardless of histology. I have to say, historically, we've been looking at the smoking history and occasional squamous cell histology tumor that we get if a patient was a never smoker, then we would uh, specifically target that particular tumor. But now, more and more, I am leaning towards uh, obtaining NGS on every patient with a lung cancer diagnosis, regardless of histology. And again, I fully realize that there are you know variability in the availability or access to these testing. But that's what I'm doing at this point, because I think there is some data to suggest that at least some of our patients with this particular histology could also have potentially driver mutation. So I think it's worthwhile for us to look into this. And uh, besides that, I would say, you know, a brain MRI would be uh, always indicated, but I don't think I need a whole lot more information here. I have a, a similar approach to you, Haas, but I acknowledge that access is a little difficult globally. Reyes, what about your practice in Spain? Is next-gen sequencing done for squamous lung cancer and is brain MRI routinely performed in someone with no symptoms? 
Well, in our practice in Spain, we only routinely do NGS in non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, and in patients with squamous tumor, if they have some strange characteristics, for example, a non-smoker or younger than 50 years old. But in this particular case, we would not have done NGS at diagnosis, except we were considering including the patient into a trial. In relation to MRI, we only do brain MRI in patients with neurological symptoms. And on a regular basis, we do CT scan, but just when the patient has symptoms. That's a standard protocol. Yeah, I think that's a pretty standard approach. There are sort of a lot of costs associated with those tests. I think a very appropriate approach. I can come back to our case. This patient did have a brain MRI, and it was unremarkable. I did send him for bronchoscopy to get a little more tissue that did confirm ipsilateral mediastinal node involvement with squamous non-small cell lung cancer. And I did perform DNA and RNA-based next-gen sequencing. It did not reveal any actionable targets. You know, one of the things we get when we order NGS is we also get the tumor mutational burden. And the TMB that came in that report was high, 15 mutations per megabase. Now, Reyes, does TMB influence your treatment recommendations in any way? It's a good question. Well, nowadays, we don't use TMB as a standard biomarker to decide the treatment of the patients. It's true that TMB can be a controversial point, but I think TMB probably achieves more relevance in patients that you are going to treat with only with an immunotherapy. And in this case, it is more possible that our decision or my decision treatment will be chemotherapy and immunotherapy. So in this scenario of combination, I think TMB has less relevance. In my opinion, to consider TMB as the TCF biomarker, we still have to define some key points. It would be important to set what is considered a high TMB, a high TMB value. I mean, I will need more prospective validation studies. Thinking about TMB has evolved a little over the past couple of years. Haas, let me turn to you. Do you routinely order TMB and does it guide treatment for you? So we don't necessarily order a TMB, but as you suggested and you get an NGS test at this point, it is included in the report that we get for the particular tumor. Whether I use it in the frontline setting, I would have to say no, because we really haven't had any prospectively designed studies showing us that TMB is above and beyond PDL1 at this point, differentiating marker for overall survival when it comes to the use of currently available checkpoint inhibitors. And I would absolutely agree with you that our thinking is evolving. I'm, I have to say that I am a believer in the TMB, and I think this uh, question of whether TMB is useful or not always um, generates a lot of discussion on either side of the discussion, whether for or against it. I just agree with us. We haven't really decided what is high TMB. How do we measure it? Methodologies have been different. Should we use a blood-based assay? Should we use a tumor-based assay? And again, not being able to say that overall survival is improved with the, with the use of a particular biomarker, I think becomes a little bit of an issue for me in the front line. However, I have to say that if I have a patient with a disease that's unfortunately progressing on standard frontline therapy, and I am looking for studies. A TMB might encourage me one way or another, meaning that if someone has a high TMB, I might favor a more 
immunotherapy-based approach as to uh, one that doesn't have that. So I think in that way, it might be influencing me, but not in the frontline decision-making process. Yeah, I echo that. I think when I look at TMB, because like you said, it comes with the NGS report. So we see it. It's there. I'm not going to ignore it. I recognize it, sort of acknowledge it. And maybe it kind of sets expectations for me a little. Maybe I, I look at the case a little different in terms of what I expect to happen, but I don't know if it really changes the regimens I prescribe. I don't know if does that, does it change your expectations at all, Haas? Yeah, and to some extent, I would expect the patient to have a slightly better um, response to the checkpoint inhibitors. But again, the difficulty in interpreting all of these TMB studies, because the methodologies are different, the points are different, it just makes it difficult to tell someone, like if you want to have a discussion with a patient, it's kind of hard to frame the discussion. You know, some studies are positive, some studies are not so positive. Yeah, but I agree that my expectation is that, you know, I think the patient is going to do well even if they have a, uh, a low or negative pdl one expression. But I think that's mostly my bias more so than the actual data. All right. So let's go back to this case. We have a fit patient with metastatic squamous non-small cell lung cancer, pdl one 0%, pdl one negative, TMB high. What would your preferred treatment be off study? Now, in your own clinic today, Let's start with Reyes. You know, what regimen would you prescribe here? I would probably choose a combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy. I think the data published from the different trial states the patient with scabus non-small cell lung cancer and good performance status achieve better efficacy resulting with the combination if they don't have any specific convenience signs such as a tumor disorder or something like that. In Spain, our standard treatment is a combination with paclitaxel and carboplatin and pebrolizumab, 407 trial skin. But perhaps another option, uh, like 9LA combination with ipilimumab, nivolumab, paclitaxel and carboplatin could be an even better choice, in my opinion, in this patient. So 407 is frequently prescribed, carboplatin, taxane, and pembrolizumab, but Checkmate 9LA is a regimen that you mentioned, and that's a regimen that's a little different. It's based on nivolumab and ipilimumab with two cycles of chemotherapy, so a more finite course of chemotherapy with the nivolumab and ipilimumab. And Reyes, with Checkmate 9LA, we're giving nevoipi, we're giving two cycles of platinum doublet chemotherapy. Is there a particular regimen you go to for a squamous lung cancer, are you still looking at platinum taxane? I think the main advantage of the 9LA combination is a brief chemotherapy and the result of the hazard ratio of the overall survival in this particular kind of sort of patient, scamus with PDL negative tumor, uh, 0.5. So I think it's the best one. So 9LA, getting a strong vote of confidence here, a more recent regimen. Haas, how about you? Same patient, fit squamous, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, PDL one negative, TMB high. What would your approach be today? Yeah, all right. So fair question. Um, we have a lot of different options, right? As one of our colleagues have said, you know, it sort of becomes Coke versus Pepsi type of a decision at this point as to what you want to use necessarily in a, in a patient population like this. And my preference has always been to use uh, the IOI or combination with epi-nevo as per 
checked by 227. So in full disclosure, again, as you mentioned in the beginning, I've been involved in some of these studies. It was in the steering committee for 227. So I would fully admit that I have a little of a bias towards an IOI or combination. But I think in this case, I can defend the, the decision because we now have four-year overall survival data with Checkmate 227 in both squame and non-squame at uh, roughly four-year 22% survival in the uh, epinevo group for specifically squamous cell population, which is relevant to the discussion that we are having here. Now, the issue here is that PDL1 negative tumors were not part of the um, necessarily some of the primary analysis, although we have all of the data. I think the attractiveness of 9LA here is that I think we all recognize that some of our patients with metastatic lung cancer, unfortunately, can have early progression. And I think the two cycles of chemotherapy as per 9LA, which I was not involved in, so there I don't have as much of a uh, conflict, so to speak. But the two cycles of platinum doublet chemo can potentially prevent some early progression and therefore might be helpful in a setting where you have someone with increased disease burden, more symptoms in case of this patient with pleural effusion. And the other advantage is to me that at least in the US, there's regulatory approval for the 9LA regimen with two cycles of chemo plus uh, IOI combination. So I have preferentially use that in patients in whom PD-1 expression is less than 1% or negative. And I think, again, uh, the overall survival that we've seen with 227 justifies it. I think the criticism is that with 9LA, we don't have four-year survival data, and that's a valid argument. But I would say that in my estimation, the two cycles of chemo um, shouldn't really affect the overall survival to that extent and shouldn't make things worse. But given the fact that, again, I think some of our patients require cytotoxic chemo uh, to prevent that early progression makes the 9LA somewhat of a more um, attractive regimen, in my view. I think it's an important point. I mean, Checkmate 227, as you mentioned, the primary endpoint and the approval is in pdl one positive, but we do have data in pdl one negative, and they're quite compelling data. So that would be off-label use, at least at the time of this recording, but certainly an, an efficacious regimen. But Checkmate 9LA does have some appeal here. So we have two votes now for 9LA. When we think of dual checkpoint blockade, Haas, how do you discuss a regimen like this with your patient, with their family? You know, What do you tell them with regard to safety? So I would say that definitely the addition of epilumumab to the treatment regimen. And again, uh, just as a reminder, this is not just one or two or three doses of an anti-CTLA-4 antibody. This is continuous treatment. I would highlight that there's definitely more toxicity associated with a dual checkpoint inhibitor regimen. I would emphasize that sometimes it is possible for us to identify a particular side effect with one of the checkpoint inhibitors and perhaps stop that early. In this case, a CTLA-4, which I think most of us would think as causing more of an issue. I would also emphasize that based on studies in lung cancer, the dose of EP used in a setting like this is below that of some of the other malignancies. And therefore, the dosing and schedule of delivery makes this a little bit more tolerable than what we've seen, let's say, in in the case of melanoma, for instance, where the dose of the epi is higher. But I would definitely emphasize that toxicity such as skin, endocrine, specifically thyroid, and colitis uh, can, in fact, be higher. But the opposite of it is that I think the efficacy of the combination 
specifically in OS, is better with the dual checkpoint inhibitor. And again, with appropriate consenting and discussing all of these pros and cons, we would recommend the IO-IO combination. Dose is important there. I mean, ipilimumab, a versatile drug, we use it in some different cancers, but the dosing is not the same everywhere. So that's an important point for our colleagues that maybe treat more than just lung cancer. Ray, is any difference in your approach when you're discussing this with your patients? You know, how do you explain this regimen to them? Well, I think the oncologist must explain the patient the advantages and the disadvantages of the treatment. The way I see it, the great point of 9LA scheme is better hazard ratio in our survival for this group of patients, a brief, a very brief chemotherapy, only two cycles. But the main disadvantages is the combination with ipilimumab, in my experience, in our experience, increases gastrointestinal toxicity. On the other hand, another combination with carboplatin, paclodacetin, and pembrolizumab is better, well-tolerated scheme of treatment, but the chemotherapy is longer, are four cycles. And I think the patient's opinion must take into account. Yeah, so a shared decision-making model, really important here. And if you start a regimen, like a 9LA regimen or a 407 regimen, Reyes, when are you doing your first CT scan? Well, in our standard protocol, we usually do a scan after three cycles when we use chemo plus pembrolizumab or after two cycles in 9LA skin when chemotherapy is finished. Always before the beginning of the maintenance therapy. So after induction, before maintenance, has any difference in your approach? I have a little bit more of a traditional approach, I would say, uh, in that I would use, if I'm using the 9LA or a chemotherapy-based protocol, I tend to repeat the scanning after two cycles. Then once I'm done and we with the, with the induction and the maintenance, then I extend it to nine weeks, which would be about three cycles or so. And then when I have more of a comfort level that we have some level of control and uh, clinically a uh, patient has shown signs of improvement, might even extend that period you know, further down. So the goal would be to do less and less scans, but I kind of worry about uh, patients with metastatic lung cancer and I'd like to do that first scan within you know, the first six weeks or so of initiating any new regimen, particularly with chemotherapy. Now, if you have a really good response, as you mentioned, no significant toxicities, how long would you continue therapy, Haas? Is this uh, an indefinite treatment? Is there a fixed time point? So I'm assuming here, Stephen, you're referring to the maintenance IOIO in this case, correct? That's right. Yeah. So again, you're bringing these uh, questions up because you know it's a controversy and you want to get me in trouble, but okay, I'll take it. I think the discussion here is if I'm hearing you correctly, should we stop at two years or should we continue type of, I think if I read your question correctly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the absence of, you know, randomized data, I think this is another area where a shared decision-making process, at least in my clinic, becomes very, very important. If you look at some of the data that's been presented, particularly with single agent IO with chemo combination, uh, there is this magical two-year mark that we're supposed to sort of say everything is done. So you're following level one evidence and you're following what has been done in clinical trials, which is what most of us try to do, because that's when you get the best results. 
then, you know, approaching that two-year mark, I start having a discussion with the patient who has had a really, really good response and say, you know, most of the studies recommend two years. And beyond that, we, A, don't have safety data, and B, we don't have clinical efficacy data, meaning that additional treatment might help, but it might not. And it could be additional toxicity, although I have to acknowledge that majority of data that I have seen suggests uh, deep down into a treatment, uh, the percentage of patients who have adverse events is a little bit less than it is in the beginning. So, and that's the discussion I have with most of our patients. I think sometimes as physicians, we also are influenced by our personal experiences, although this becomes anecdotal. I think it's important to realize that, you know, I have stopped checkpoint inhibitors at two-year mark, and unfortunately, I have seen patients with disease recurrence and not responded to reintroduction of the checkpoint inhibitor. Now, the argument on the flip side is that that could have continued, that could have happened regardless, even if I had continued the checkpoint inhibitor. Nonetheless, I would like to sort of stick to the data, and if the data says, or the clinical trial says, stop after two years, I have that discussion and I tend to hold treatment and not go beyond it, again, as long as the patient and family agrees. So that's the general approach I have taken. And I would, again, fully admit that I have no problem with continuing the maintenance IO until disease progression in the absence of significant toxicities. Yeah, it's, I think, a big unanswered question. And when we first started these studies, as you remember, in the early trials, there was no two-year time point. We just continued indefinitely it's really mm-hmm. in a salvage setting. And that two years was, I think, maybe a little arbitrary. I don't know. There was a strong data to pick two years over you know, one and a half or two and a half or three, and you know, probably a little different for everyone, I would imagine, the optimal duration. But when we first started stopping therapy at two years, I thought patients would be really relieved to get to the two-year mark. I was maybe a little surprised that two years, a lot of my patients kind of didn't want to stop. There was really some protestation, really some concern about stopping. I don't know if you've encountered the same thing. I do, actually. So I have patients who are more than happy not to have to see my face every six to nine weeks. On the other hand, I do have patients who are very, very worried about stopping You know, a treatment that we're telling them is working. And you can understand that. I mean, putting yourself in uh, someone else's shoes sometimes is helpful. And understanding what they're going through. So clearly there's a drug here that's holding metastatic lung cancer under control. Why would I want to stop after two years, especially if I'm doing well with the treatment? So I think these um, discussions are very much a part of what we do now in our in our everyday practice. It should be part of it. And I think patient input is really important in a setting like this. And I'm exactly like you, I would say, that my batting average right now, given the fact that we're getting to the baseball season, is 50-50. 50% of my patients are sort of fine with stopping and see what happens. And another 50% absolutely would want to continue with the treatment and not have any interruption. So again, an area where perhaps uh, minimal residual disease kind of data, DNA data, would be very helpful in identifying patients who might benefit from additional treatment versus not, or uh, studies that look at duration of therapy rather carefully. I think these are all important areas that we don't have clear answers to. Yeah. Excellent points. Now in this patient, I know uh, Reyes Hospital, both of you showed support for, for Checkmate Non-LA. In this patient, we took a different approach. We opted to treat with uh, Keynote 407. We gave carboplatin, paclitaxel, pembrolizumab. Um, he had a good response to therapy. We did have to drop the doses uh, due to neutropenia, but completed four cycles of induction. We then have him on pembrolizumab maintenance. Now, this happened during the pandemic. 
And so we did switch him to pembrolizumab every six-week dosing, and that reduces the visits to our center, reduces exposures a bit. Reyes, do you have access in Spain to extended six-week dosing of pembrolizumab? Well, it's not usual in Spain six-week dosing of pembrolizumab. We have had access during the pandemic period uh, in order to reduce the number of cycles and the visits of the patients to the hospital. But normally we we use three-week doses. However, when I have used it, uh, my experience has been more or less the same. So similar in terms of, of toxicity, just sort of less frequent visits. Is that right? Yes, yes. And Haas, you, do you use the six-week dosing regimen at all? Any pros or cons there? I do. I think in a, in a maintenance setting, I do use it. And again, especially during the pandemic where we were trying to limit exposure of our patients to, you know, more of a general population and all that, it became very, very helpful to have that sort of option. In the induction phase, I think it just makes sense to have everything every three weeks with chemo, but definitely in the maintenance phase, I'm more than happy to consider the, uh, the longer infusion time between, between the treatments. Now, we really do have a lot of options in this setting in the U.S. Keynote 407, that was carboplatin taxane, either paclitaxel or nab paclitaxel with pembrolizumab. We also have Checkmate 9LA with two cycles of histology-appropriate chemotherapy and nivolumab and ipilimumab, both approved. And we've also mentioned you know, the use of nivolumab and ipilimumab based on Checkmate 227, showing good outcomes in PDL one negative, though that would be off-label use. Now, in this particular patient, he received a carbopaclitaxel and pembro. He's had a good response. His response is, is ongoing, fortunately, as of now. But if our future scans would show progression of disease, can I ask what you recommend as second-line treatment off, you know, after chemoimmunotherapy, off study? You know, so, Reyes, if this patient was treated at your institution and received, you know, Keynote 407, carboplatin, paclitaxel, pembrolizumab, and progressed during pembrolizumab, what would you offer now as standard second-line treatment? Okay, I think it depends on the interval of progression-free survival. In the response maintained for more than six months from the last platinum, I will repeat a combination of chemotherapy with platinum. If the progression-free survival is lesser than three months, I will offer a treatment with acetaxel. I think the most difficult point, the most difficult decision is when the progression occurs between three to six months. And in this situation, both choices uh, of the treatment, platinum or docetaxel, can be accepted. It depends on the patient, the comorbidity, the previous toxicity, and that sort of factors, I think. Yeah, there's a lot goes into it, certainly. And Reyes, any use of ramucirumab, the anti-VEGFR2 antibody? Sorry? Any use of ramucirumab in the second line setting with docetaxel? No, no. Ramucirumab is not allowed in Spain to use it. So we can use it because we don't have authorization for lung cancer treatment. Understood. Understood. So no access to ramucirumab. So uh, choosing between platinum retreatment versus docetaxel. Haas, your approach at progression? So again, in the absence of clinical trial, I would use um, uh, primarily docetaxel in a, in a setting like this. The question of ramucirumab is always a good one. I think in patients with squamous cell histology, particularly, I mean, you've got to have to be careful with 
major vessel involvement, cavitary lesions, and issues like that. I would say that I have used DOSI plus ramucirumab, but it's not an automatic reaction for me to go to directly DOSI ram. But a combination like that is always what we would prefer. And just briefly, if, if it were available, you know, would the Poseidon regimen also be something you might consider in the first line setting here? So that's a really interesting question, Steve. And uh, again, just as a review, Poseidon was a large, over a thousand patient uh, study in non-muscle lung cancer, three separate arms, Dorva plus Tremi, another IOIO regimen. So again, Tremi has the CTLA-4 inhibitor, Dorva BM1 inhibitor. Uh, so one arm was Dorva, Tremi, but chemo. One arm was controlled, just chemo. And the other arm was a chemo plus uh, Dorvalumab. And again, in the final analysis, uh, Dorvatremi plus chemo did better in terms of overall survival compared to chemo alone with a hazard ratio of about 0.77. You know, I would say hazard ratio is a little bit um, worse than we would normally want to see in a phase three study, meaning that uh, the uh, 0.7 hazard ratio is usually what I'd like to see for a regimen in a phase three setting. I do have to say that the, the numeric median overall survival with the uh, dorvatremic chemo was around 14 months, and with chemo in the study was just around 11 and a half months, which again suggests a you know fairly good clinical benefit from the the combination. I don't have a lot of experience with um, tremilumab in this setting, so if I am going to use an IOIO regimen, again emphasizing my own bias, I would probably go with the epinevo myself. But would this be a potential option, uh, given the fact that there is clinical efficacy? I would have to say, yes, we can look at it. Now, i got to be honest with you, I don't recall all the um, you know, subdivisions between the histologies and the PDL one status and all of that off the top of my head. But that's the way I look at this particular study. It's a crowded space. And you know, when we see positive data uh, using a control arm that's not really our standard anymore, it makes it a little more difficult to interpret. I mean, it's good to have, it's good to have choices, but it does make things more complicated. I clearly, you know, Reyes, Haas, both of you voiced immunotherapy is is certainly the most important part of our treatment here, but we're still figuring out the optimal delivery approach. In the PDL one positive setting, we have even more options, you know, with monotherapy. And, you know, even though it doesn't pertain just to this case, I think it's probably wise to mention the Insigna trial. This is an NCI study that's working to define the optimal approach in PDL one positive non-small cell lung cancer, and I think answering some relevant questions. Haas, you're one of the leaders of that study. Could you just very briefly maybe give an overview of that trial and what question that's seeking to answer? I would love to. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Stephen. I really appreciate it. So Insigna is an NCI-supported phase three study uh, seeking to enroll about 840 patients with PDL one positive tumor, so any positive with D1 plus and higher. And we randomized patients into three separate arms. In arm A, we started pembrolizumab, and at, time, at the time of progression, um, we just continued with platinum doublet chemo. In arm B, we started with pembro again. At the time of progression, we add chemo to pembro. And arm C is our control arm of um, chemo plus immunotherapy. And the major discussion here is A, first of all, in patients with PD1 positive tumors, one, one uh, plus. Is there an advantage in terms of sequencing the treatments? And B, uh, does the idea of uh, treatment beyond progression with a checkpoint inhibitor and adding chemotherapy at the time of progression, in fact, um, 
a useful strategy in treating patients with uh, particularly non-squamous histology, unfortunately, we're only uh, concentrating on a non-squamous histology just because of different chemotherapy arms that would have been needed, would have made the study a lot more difficult to conduct. And along with our colleagues in SWOG, and, and we have a rather robust biomarker assessment a series of correlative studies attached to the trial. So we are asking for blood samples and, if possible, tumor samples for uh, the correlative studies and biomarker assessments. So it is an important question in terms of uh, providing uh, a little bit clearer view as to whether uh, sequencing matters and as to whether treatment beyond progression with a checkpoint inhibitor it can, in fact, be a useful strategy in this patient population. So we're hoping that people can participate and support the trial because I think uh, some of the questions we're asking are actually really important. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it on this uh, podcast. So I'll encourage investigators who have access to that study to really consider supporting that. I do think it's an important question. And, you know, this has really been a great discussion with both of you. And we just have a few minutes. And I wonder, uh, before we go, if we could maybe just hear a little bit about the two of you. Reyes, you are right now in Seville, in Sevilla. Did you do all of your your training there? And maybe you could tell us how you decided to focus on lung cancer. Yes, Stephen, I did my training in medical oncology. And since then, I have been working here in Seville all the time, except for when I did a specific training in Christie Hospital in Manchester in phase one and lung cancer unit. And I decided to focus on lung cancer because development in these pathologies, I think, has been the most interesting one in the last 20 years in oncology. So when I had the opportunity to choose, I thought lung cancer was a challenging option and that I should give it a try. Um, so far, I am happy with my decision. Well, so are we, Reyes. You've done a, a great work there, and we certainly had a chance to collaborate on some things in Spain. So I think we're all the better for that. Haas, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your training and, and why you focused on lung cancer. Sure. Again, I appreciate it. So I did uh, pretty much all of my training as an oncologist at Fox Chase, where I've stayed on as a faculty and uh, continued to uh, work in the world of lung cancer. The little known fact is that in the beginning when I started, I actually used to be a hybrid uh, type of person. I had a hemolignancy clinic and a lung cancer clinic, but uh, it became more and more obvious that my passion was with lung cancer. And uh, there are a number of different reasons. Uh, first, an opportunity to do something meaningful, I think, was uh, one of the more important aspects of it. There was a lot of room for progress in lung cancer when I joined it. You know, just because we didn't have a lot of treatment options, it was pretty clear that there was a need for additional, you know, not just clinical trials, but research into understanding lung cancer and all of that. And then I was fortunate enough um, to be working with a mentor who believed in immunotherapy before immunotherapy became significant. So I benefited from uh, that the mentoring. And then in the world of lung cancer, I had really great mentors again in the clinic, uh, Dr. Joe Tree, Dr. Corey Langer, uh, were really good uh, role models. And I became interested in uh, various questions and issues. And I love the patient population. You know, they're a group that um, somehow I kind of identify with, perhaps because I had family members who were smokers who suffered from various malignancies, and maybe that had something to do with it. But there were a number of different reasons, as I mentioned, and I think I am grateful to have had the opportunity to do something that was a little bit useful in this setting. I'll say it's an understatement. I think that you know all of our colleagues, our patients are both grateful that both of you decided to focus on lung cancer. We're better off for it. And we are out of time for this episode. So Reyes, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you for the invitation. This has been a pleasure. And Haas, thank you for, for all your insights. Uh, great to have you today. Thank you. Thanks a lot for the invitation. I enjoyed this. And thanks to everyone out there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 